Uh, we begin this morning with our. Uh, we're going to begin with our New Testament lesson, actually. So if you've already turned to the Old Testament lesson, because that's the order we normally do things, we're going to go a little out of order. So we'll start with Ephesians chapter two, verses one through ten. Um, part of this that was actually uh, our theme verse for impact this uh, last week, saying uh, the theme idea was made for this. <laughs> this is what we're made for. And we went through a lot of what that is that we're made for uh, over the week. But especially as we are looking at what it means to be born again in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, this is a good place uh, to understand better what it is that he's talking about. So as we, or before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and God, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. God, we do pray that you would give us understanding. God, that you would uh, help us not to resist and harden our hearts against um, the parts that are clear to us already, and we just aren't sure we want to receive it. God, do give us soft hearts that are ready to receive. But God, the parts that are unclear, We pray that you would um, make those clear as well. Or that we would understand more, not just for the sake of information, but for the sake of transformation. That we would come to know you better. That we would come to love and trust you more. And in that, be changed by your word, by your spirit, into the people that you created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And then turning to Numbers 21. Um, some of you may have been a bit disturbed this morning when you got here and saw the picture on the cover of the bulletin. It's not the usual pictures we have. Uh, bronze snake up on a pole. But there's a reason for that. And uh, this is a story that happens in Numbers that raises a lot of questions for a lot of people. As If you are reading this far in your Bible and you get to Numbers chapter 21 and you read this story, you tend to have a lot of questions. And it's one of those that either you get stumped and I don't even know what to make of that and move on. Or you think, well, it's probably not that big a deal anyway. <laughs> Move on. 
Um, but you know John 3.16. It's like the most famous verse in the Bible. And uh, what comes right before it, though, is John 3.14 and 15, where Jesus actually, in talking with Nicodemus, talks about this story. And so there's something going on here that is uh, important to pay attention to, and Jesus will um, tie that all together for us here in a little bit. But here we go. The story he refers to is in Numbers 21, starting in verse 4. So they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake, they looked at the bronze snake and looked at the bronze snake. They lived. Real clear, right? Nobody has any questions at this point, right? I mean, come on, that's weird. Yeah, we can, it's okay to admit that. There's weird stuff. Um, and a part of that is just we, sh- we should expect as we read the Bible to see things that are weird because we know that God has said that his ways are not our ways, <laughs> right? Our thoughts are not his thoughts. Our ways are not his ways. And so when we read it, if everything is exactly how we would do it, well, that would be weird. Um, but now going back to John chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. This is where we pick up a conversation mid-conversation. And so uh, you may want to read verses 1 through 8 here real quickly. But this is a conversation that Jesus is having with a man named Nicodemus. It's, it's at nighttime. Uh, Nicodemus is part of the Jewish ruling council, and he has come to Jesus at night, and he's uh, talking to him and saying, look, you know, we, we know that you're someone special. And Jesus, as we talked about last week, just goes straight to the heart and says, uh, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Nicodemus, I don't know, I understand this. And Jesus just keeps coming back at it. You've got to be born again. You've got to be born again. And uh, the way that we talked about this last week was with a quote from Mere Christianity, where C.S. Lewis says, If I am a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still produce grass and no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be plowed up and re-sown. Another way of looking at the same kind of idea is, um, and I wish, I wish I had pictures to show you of the, um, the work that we did this past week at Impact. Because they did, they did the before and after pictures of most of the work sites. And so you'd get there, and the place you know, would just be a mess. In the yard, grass really tall, couches out there, tires, the whole thing. Uh, and then you go in there, and you 
do the work and you get it all cleaned up and then you step back and you look at it again and it, it looks like a whole different place. Um, I don't have the, the pictures for that, but maybe you can imagine in your head if you've ever seen one of those uh, remodeling shows where they do those before and after pictures. Like that's what you watch it for, right? That's what you want to see. Yeah, you might learn some tips and tricks along the way, but really what you're watching the show for is you want to see a place that is uh, that has been run down or out of date. Somehow this, is, this space has become a problem. And then you see people who are experts who know what they're doing, and they go in and they take this place that seems almost hopeless, and they turn it into something wonderful and just brand new. And then they show the side-by-side, and as you've been watching through all the way, you kind of, you know, step by step, but then you go back and you look at what it used to be, and you hold that up next to what it is now, and I can't believe it's the same place. That's like a whole other place. (laughs) And this is the kind of image uh, that I think Jesus is getting at when he talks about we need to be born again. And so, yes, there's a connection to what we have been, but it's like we are whole new people. And as we talked last week, it's people who have new eyes to see things differently, the new hands that, that serve differently, new feet that go different places, that every part of us, new minds that think in, a, in different ways than we used to, different patterns of thought, uh, and different hearts that uh, have a new compassion and love for other people. This... Uh, and so, you know, if you have all these new <laughs> parts, what is that but a new creation? And so this is where Jesus talks about this as being uh, born again. And he even says, you should not be surprised at my saying this. But Nicodemus' response again, and this is where we pick up today, it starts in verse 9. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. That's not a bad question right? It's one thing to see this happen with a house on TV. It's another thing uh, for it to happen in our lives. It's one thing to see a caterpillar turn into a butterfly or a, a tadpole turn into a frog. It's another to say, this is going to happen with me? How? How does that happen? How does that take place? Verse 10, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Okay, stop right there. In Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, we first have uh, Nicodemus and his being confused. And it's hard to tell at this point, you know, is he genuine, genuinely curious, genuinely interested, genuinely wanting to know? Or is this one of those um, kind of verbal battle of wits? where he's just going to see uh, what Jesus says so he can kind of counter that somehow. I don't know. But where we have it is Jesus just keeps on with him. 
and talking to him about, uh, about what it means to be born again. But here he goes into this, uh, what he's testifying to, what he's seen. The idea of testifying is important in our culture. It was very important to John as well. He talks about this a lot, this idea of testifying. And in our culture, one of the ways that we do this, if something happens and you need to call somebody into court, who do you want? You want the eyewitness, right? You're not going to call into court. I think there may be even legal things about this. You're not going to call into court somebody who heard from somebody who heard from somebody who heard from somebody. That's no, inadmissible. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you need somebody who was there. Why do you want somebody who was there, who saw it for themselves, who heard it for themselves? Why do you want that? Come on. You've all played the telephone game, right? You know what happens when you heard from somebody who heard from somebody who heard from somebody. There's a lot that gets garbled in translation. And so even though you heard from somebody who heard from somebody who heard from somebody, what you may have heard may not be what actually happened. And so you want to get as close as you can to, uh, to the actual events. You want eyewitnesses, people who were there, who saw what took place, who heard what happened. That's who you want to hear from. You want somebody to testify who was there. This, uh, say it was important to John, he talks about it quite a bit um, in, in the Gospel of John, but also this is the way he starts First John. This is one of the reasons why we read these Gospels instead of just telling each other the stories. Go back and we read these again and again and again because uh, you don't just want to hear from somebody who heard from somebody who heard from somebody. You want to go back to the people who were there with Jesus, who saw him, who heard him, and are testifying as eyewitnesses. This is what John says as he opens his letter of 1 John. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Do you hear how many times in those few verses, John is again and again is hitting that point of, this is not something I heard from somebody who heard from somebody who heard from somebody. This is something I saw and heard myself. Those of us who are testifying to this, this is eyewitness testimony. And what, uh, and I hope we can appreciate that uh, just from our own experience, but that's the same idea that Jesus is now getting uh, across to Nicodemus and saying, you know, it seems like one of the reasons that you don't understand is because you haven't had this firsthand experience. But let me ask you, if you want to understand, who are you going to go to? Somebody who's had the firsthand experience or not? I'll tell you what, in our culture today, when coming to um, questions of Christianity, how often do people actually try to investigate what Christianity is all about by going to people with firsthand experience? Versus how often, instead, do they go to people who've heard from somebody who's heard from somebody that they have no firsthand experience? Right? And they end up with a very distorted version of Christianity, and they reject it. If people want to know what Christianity is about, they need to be talking with people who have first-hand experience, right? 
That seems like it makes sense. And those of us who have firsthand experience should be quick to share and to testify about what we have experienced and to point people to places like the book of John, where John tells of his firsthand experience with Jesus. But the way Jesus talks about it is that he's the one we look to because he's the one who actually has firsthand experience of heaven itself. You want to know what that's like? (laughs) Jesus says, I'm the one that you go to. Let me read what he says again. He says, very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But you people still do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. The son of man. Jesus puts himself forward as the one who knows what he's talking about. (laughs) And everybody else is kind of picking things up secondhand. Maybe making guesses from the outside. He says, I've been there. I know what it's about. This, (laughs) This is my home. This is where I live. And of course, as we see other places, he's the one who created heaven and earth. Of course he knows. So why would we listen to others instead of him? And then he says this really, really weird sentence. This is verses 14 and 15. This is where he goes back to that story we read from Numbers, where we read the story and we go, I don't know, I don't know what to do with that. And Jesus goes back to this and says, I'll tell you what to do with this. So let's think about the story again. In the book of Numbers, we have the Israelites who have come out of slavery in Egypt. And now they're at this period where they are wandering around in the wilderness. They're not in the promised land yet. They've done plenty of whining. There's been uh, all kinds of, you know, I'd be better off if we were still slaves instead of free people following God. Anyway, (laughs) uh, and again and again, he has, I am the one providing for you. Trust me, keep on following. And again and again, there's the turning away and the uh, whining and complaining um, and not trusting him to provide. And this happens again. And this time, what God provides are poisonous snakes. Does that seem weird to anybody? It seems weird to me. That God would provide poisonous snakes, and they come in and they start biting people. And the Venomous, sorry, I got that wrong. Those of you who know your stuff are like, stop saying that. Okay, <laughs> venomous snakes. <laughs> uh, and they start biting people, and people are dying. And this seems, it seems odd, it seems weird, it seems harsh. And then uh, when the people pray, they pray that the snakes would go away. But the snakes don't go away, do they? What is the answer to the prayer? This is a story that gets weirder. God tells Moses to make a snake. And so he makes a snake out of bronze. He says, okay, put the snake up on a pole. And he puts it up on a pole. It's like, all right, now people are still going to get bit bit by these snakes. And it will still kill them. Unless, after they've been bitten by this snake, they look up at this bronze snake up on a pole. And if they do that, then they live. Like, well, that is some weird medicine. How in the world does the direction of your eyeballs fix the venom that's coursing through your system? 
right? Is anybody tracking with me here? That's the way I think. <laughs> when I hear this sort of thing, I'm like, if I look over here, that does nothing about what's going on in here. But that's because we tend to think about this in a very different way than the Bible actually is talking about it. And so we tend to think about it from sort of this uh, kind of modern Western medical perspective where we say, okay, what's going on biologically? Biologically, I've got the venom that's in my system. That's what's going to kill me. So I need a biological solution to a biological problem. I need the antivenom <laughs> that's going to go in there and fix this problem. But what's really going on is not just a biological problem. There's something more at work. This is actually a spiritual problem that's going on that requires a spiritual answer. And the, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed this, but the direction of your eyeballs does make a spiritual difference. The things that you look at and why you look at them actually does indicate what's going on in your heart. and doesn't just indicate what's going on in your heart, but it actually changes the direction of your heart. This is the idea that, uh, that God is getting across to the people. And it's not that there was some uh, magical thing about this snake as though this bronze snake had the power to heal. Not at all. Not at all. But instead, it was God saying, I'm going to provide a way, and the way that I'm going to provide isn't going to make any sense to you. But do you trust me? Do you trust me? And so then what happens? Somebody gets bit by a snake, and they have to ask themselves the question, am I going to trust God or not? That the way that he has provided is the way that I will be healed. That's what's going on here. Same kind of idea runs all through the Bible where we get these weird things. Uh, Naaman comes uh, to Elisha and is like, I've got leprosy. I need... Elisha doesn't even go out and talk to him, sends a servant out and says, just go wash in the river seven times. <laughs> I could have done that back home. No, no, no. I need something, you know, really magical and special. And he's like, no, you don't. You just need to trust God. <laughs> trust him. That's what you need. And he goes and he does it. And he's healed. So that's really uh, the idea here of what's going on. So now back to what, how Jesus talks about this. Back in the conversation with Nicodemus. Picking up in verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. This, um, there's so much going on in this one little statement. I'll just give you a couple nuggets. Jesus refers to him, himself constantly as the Son of Man. If you want to know what that's about, take a look at Daniel chapter 7 particularly verses 13 and 14, where uh, he's been talking in Daniel's vision. He sees all these different beasts that arise to rule over the nations. But then finally, there's this one, like a son of man, this human person. And this is the one who uh, approaches the ancient of days, who's led into his presence, 
and has given all glory, authority, honor, power, and a kingdom that will never be destroyed. These are the things that Jesus is talking about when he refers to himself as the Son of Man. He is the human one who is uh, that king over all. But there's also this idea of being lifted up. And lifted up has that in it, right? To be exalted. To be the one who scored the winning goal for your team and everybody grabs you and they stick you up on their shoulders, right? They're prancing you around the field. And everybody's cheering for you because you are the one who won the victory. Lift it up. We do this today still. And yet Jesus says, yeah, he's going to be lifted up. There's a little play on words with that or on the idea. Because every time that he's talking about being lifted up uh, throughout this gospel, there's not just the idea of being exalted, but of being lifted up on the cross. And so what Jesus is saying is when, just as um, Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's talking about when he's going to be put on a pole, when he's going to be put on the cross, and where all of those of us who have the, the venom of that ancient serpent from the Garden of Eden coursing through our bodies and souls that has um, poisoned us with the lie that says, you may have the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible talks about that, the poison uh, being the lie that has existed in every human heart since that day that whispers to every one of us, God doesn't love me. And when we have this poison in our system that leads only to death, Jesus says, look to me. Look to me. And not just look to me, but look to me as I'm lifted up on the cross and you can see, does God love you? Oh, how he loves you. He says, this, this is the antidote. This is what fixes that problem. This is what brings new life out of what seems like only death. And the question, of course, is the same as always before. Do we trust him? Do we believe that his way is the right way? Do we believe that he's the one who knows what he's talking about? Now, that should be where we're going where we would end, but we can't. We've got one more thing we have to talk about with that snake on a pole and how it relates to the cross. If you skip forward many years after Moses put that snake on a pole, this is in 2 Kings 18. And we've had the people in the promised land for many, many, many years. And uh, kingdoms have risen and fallen in this time. And uh, the northern kingdom is on its way out. The southern kingdom is the only one still there of Judah. And here's what's happening. 
It says, In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. Now listen. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. Now, if we thought it was weird before, it should definitely strike us as weird now. (laughs) Moses had put this snake on a pole at a particular time, in a particular place, for a particular reason. And people apparently have kept this pole, and they have kept it around, not for the reason it was given. It was given as a way for people to express their trust in God, to follow him, and for their relationship to him uh, to be strengthened. And what they have done instead is they've replaced a relationship with him with a relationship to this snake on a pole. And so what was supposed to facilitate relationship is now in the way of the relationship to where it needs to be torn down. Looking at what we've looked at, Jesus talking about this comparison with himself, um, I can't help but think of the relationship of Christians today with the cross itself. When we look at the cross, it should always be a reminder of how much God loves you. Right? Of the lengths to which he has gone to be in relationship with you again. And yet, how many times do we take the cross itself and use it like it's some sort of magical good luck charm or something? If I have a wall of crosses on the, house, on the wall in my home, that somehow this is going to protect me from the evils of this world. That's not what the cross was given for. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have a wall of crosses at your house. That's probably a lovely thing. If... It is leading you every time you see that to remember how much God loves you and what he has done for you in giving his son for you, that you would have a relationship with him. If you see that every time and it makes you praise God and worship him and be in a relationship, wonderful. But if instead it's keeping you from that relationship, tear it down. I would say the same for this one here. I would say the same for every cross we see anywhere. If it is promoting our relationship with God, our continued trust in him and relationship with him, good. That's what it's for. But if at any point it becomes an idol of its own, tear it down. Jesus said, just as, this, as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Why? That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. This is what the cross is for, is life in him, now and forever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.